Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast. Taking a look inside your genes. the costs of DNA analysis come down, we've seen the rise of direct-to-consumer genetic testing, allowing anyone to spit in a tube, pop it in the post and get a personalised readout direct to their inbox. But what do these tests actually reveal? Honestly, it's interesting kind of to just see it on paper almost, in print, but it's interesting in the same way taking personality tests are interesting. They kind of tell you something you already know about yourself, but it's kind of reaffirming. Very introspective in a way, but other than that, it's, it's more of a fun thing to do than a serious thing to do. Plus, how advertising execs can help us talk about genes, digging up the secrets in dog genomes, and our gene of the month is totally legless. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for April 2016 with me, Dr. Katani, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Have you ever wondered just what's in your genes? Maybe you're concerned about your risk of certain diseases, or you're keen to find out more about your ancestry. Now it's possible, thanks to -to direct-to-consumer genetic tests, such as those offered by 23andMe here in the UK. But what's it like to take one of these tests, and what actually happens? Hi, I'm Misha Gajewski, and I am a person who had their genes tested. Tell me a bit about the background to this. What was the the process that led you towards getting your, your genome done? Um, It was mostly just out of intrigue and also to get my employee (laughs) to pay for a gene test because I thought it would be interesting to find out kind of if anything was kind of lying deep within. Um, That sounds a bit sinister, your (laughs) employer paying for it. Who is your employer and why were they asking you to do this? Cancer Research UK is my employer, but they weren't asking me to do it. I I thought it would be an interesting article to write about, and so on the premise of writing a story, I got um, to get my genes tested. So how did that actually work? When people say, oh, I've had my genome done, which company did you go for, and what did it involve, actually, the practical side of it? The only one that you can get direct-to-consumer or buy kind of off-the-shelf is 23andMe. Um, So that's the one we used, and it's also pretty cheap. Pretty much anyone with 100 quid can go get one at their super drug. And what did it actually involve? Did you have to have a blood test or something like that? How did you get the DNA out of you and to them? It comes in this little kit, almost the size of a makeup box kind of a thing, and in it there's a test tube in which you spit into, uh, which sounds horrendous, and it is because you, you think like, oh, it'll just be a little bit of spit, like one or two kind of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, 
but it's actually a lot, and you're not allowed to eat or drink for a half an hour beforehand, so you're kind of strapped with this horrendous dry mouth trying to, like, produce enough saliva to fill up this stupid tube. And um, I'd read a couple of articles of other journalists who had done it before, and they're like, do not do this at work. It'll be really embarrassing for you and all your colleagues that will make fun of you. So I took mine home, which didn't actually pan out to be less embarrassing because my flatmate and a repairman were there staring at me awkwardly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just trying to work up the saliva to get it in the tube. And you just mail it back to them. And how long did it take to get some results? So it takes about eight weeks. So you kind of forget about it for a long time. And then you get this email saying, ding, your results are ready, go check them out. And that's kind of a big thing because this is your genetic makeup and potentially will tell you things about your family as well. So coming into this, what were the sort of thoughts you had about, oh God, I wonder what they'll find, I hope I don't have... XYZ? Was it anything like that? Yeah, so there's a couple of scary ones. So there's the Alzheimer risk and Parkinson's and breast cancer. And so those are kind of the major scary ones um, that I was a bit nervous about. And because I did it through work, I talked to a genetic counselor beforehand. And so that kind of prepped me and maybe didn't make it as scary as if I had just, you know, gone and opened it without knowing what the test was really about. Because most people who do these, they just pick it up off the shelf, spit in the tube, and no one sits down and talks through it with them at all. No, but there is... 23andMe does have a lot of information that kind of guides you through what the results are actually showing you, and just um, especially for the scarier ones like Alzheimer's and breast cancer, there's multiple steps you have to go through before you can actually see the results. So there's kind of this like five-step process before it's like, are you sure? Are you really sure? Are you really, really sure you want to see this? And then finally it'll let you know what you have. (laughs) And obviously our genome is something that we share with our family. Did you tell your family you were having this done? Was anyone a bit like, oh, God, what does she find? Yeah, so the genetic counsellor actually, she's like, well, have you talked to your parents? Because, you know, your results are their results. And so I ended up calling up my mom and saying, right, I want you to kind of, um, like, would you want to know? And then go ask um, my dad and my brother about this. And it was kind of funny. Um, I got her to record it because my parents live in Canada. um, So I couldn't be there for the physical conversation. So I got her to record this conversation. And when she asked my brother, he panicked. And he's like, what? Am I adopted? Like, he just freaked out. And um, I realized all those years of telling him that he was adopted finally paid off for me. <laughs> you oh, <well> <laughs> Yeah, it was my longest prank. Um. <laughs> so, so when you got that email, like, ding, here are your results, here is your, your genome, what was it? What were you actually looking at? Was it like a, a big string of A, C, T's and G's? How does it kind of come to you? So it comes actually really nicely presented in kind of drop-down menus. So there's... I think there's four categories. So you can have your traits, so that's kind of like physical characteristics, like hair color and um, if you're lactose intolerant and if you have wet or dry ear wax, kind of weird stuff Are these things you know already? Like, I kind of know what my ear wax is like and I know that I can eat cheese. Yeah, so a lot of it is stuff you can find out by looking in a mirror. Um, So that part isn't all that revealing. And then uh, there's your ancestry 
which was actually quite interesting because it kind of shows where which different parts of the world you're kind of made up of. I'm very white, so that was, you know... <laughs> Not that revealing. You know, very typical. <laughs> and then uh, there's drug response, which was kind of an interesting one, and that's where mine came up with some variations. Um, so there's, I think, one of them is like a blood pressure drug that if I take it, I don't really react to it. Um, so it's kind of good to know down the line if, you know, if you're not getting the kind of response you should, then you'll be like, oh, maybe my genes have something to do with it. And then come the big, like, genetic risk ones for diseases. And I have to ask, if you're prepared to divulge, is there anything in there that made you go, oh, crumbs? No, I was so average, which was... I don't know, like, you don't want anything, but for the sake of my story, I almost kind of wanted there to be, like, an increased risk of heart disease or something in there that I could write about and, like, talk about it, but everything kind of just turned out normal. And how did you feel about it afterwards? Were you like, oh, phew, I, I know that now. How, how did you respond to having this information? Well, so it took a while to actually get up the courage to open it in the first place. I faffed about for three days after I received the email before I kind of was like, okay, okay, I'll open it now. Um, but then after, it's, I don't know, a lot of this stuff you kind of know from talking to your family. If, you know, like if your family does have a higher risk of cancer, you kind of know because your aunt might have had it, your mom might have had it. And so for me, like nothing really changed um, and... I'm not going to change any of my health behaviors based on my results. And to be honest, I pretty much forgot about it after I (laughs) opened it. Some people are concerned when they have a kind of genetic analysis that potentially it might have any knock-on effects in the future. Is that something that crossed your mind, for example, if insurance companies did change their mind about not using genetic information? Yeah, so that was kind of an interesting bit of um, the piece I wrote was actually finding out the legal implications of doing a genetic test is because right now in the UK there is a moratorium on kind of insurance companies employers not being allowed to use your genetic information against you but you don't know how long that's going to last if it's going to stick so it could change in the future and as like more genetic tests are being developed it could have kind of a scary implication and yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure about that one. That one was kind of a bit scary. So overall, how did you find the experience? You know, if, if someone else said, should I have this done, what would you say to them? Honestly, it's interesting kind of to just see it on paper almost um, in print, but it's interesting in the same way taking personality tests are interesting. They kind of tell you something you already know about yourself, but it's kind of reaffirming and kind of like very introspective in a way Um, but other than that it's it's more of a fun thing to do than a serious thing to do. Misha Gajewski and you can read her account of having her genome done and what she found on the Cancer Research UK blog. The link's on the page for this podcast at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. As Misha mentioned before she took her gene test she wanted to discuss it with her family. But how do you go about starting conversations like this, especially if all this talk of genes, DNA and genomes is a bit confusing? To get the conversation flowing, genetic counsellor Anna Middleton, based at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute in Cambridge, has teamed up with advertising executive Julian Borrer to make a series of short films about different genetic concepts. I've been looking at how to start a conversation about genomics with people who know nothing about genomics. And the reason being that 
genetic technology is being mainstreamed across healthcare services now. So it's in paediatrics, ENT, dermatology, obstetrics. Um, it's moved out of the specialist clinical services, clinical genetic services and across the NHS. So more people than ever before are having to engage with the technology. And you might think, well, it's not really very relevant to me because I'm not currently using you know, health services. But maybe your relatives are, and that's the key thing about genetics is that everybody that we're biologically related to contains information that might be relevant, re- relevant to us too. So um, it's about really reaching the general public and their relatives with very generic messages about genetics, really. So I've been looking at how to do that and employing the skills of the advertising industry who are very well-versed at reaching mass populations, uh, you know, turning complex ideas into simple messages. How do you go about starting a conversation about genetics? How have you been trying to get advertisers to help us with this? We're we're doing something, I I guess, quite innovative in that we're combining uh, methods from social science and methods used in market research and advertising. So I've done a series of focus groups with members of the public that are completely detached from genomics currently. So I've I've met with a choir, I've met with a a council residence association group, I've met with a women's guild group, I even went down and joined a a curry club, a men's curry club. Um, I've met some parents at the school gates and and I've listened to um, how they naturally talk about issues to do with genetics. So I've prompted them for words like DNA, gene, genetics, genomics and asked them what those terms mean to them and then listened to the natural conversation. I've then analysed those in a qualitative sense and taken those themes to Julian Borrer, who's my partner from the advertising world, and he's ex-Sarchi and Sarchi Creative Director. Um, And Julian and I then bounced around the themes to sort of think through how natural conversation is happening um, and then to overlay a narrative on top of that. So we wanted to see what metaphors, memes, ideas people are currently using um, and then we've given them a bit of a, a creative makeover and turned those into a series of animations. And the animations just use some of these metaphors to try and start a conversation. And we don't actually know if they work or not. This is a research project. But what we're doing is we're showing the animations and asking people to let us know what they think of them and whether there's anything that resonates. Is there anything in there that sparks a conversation or makes people go, oh, that's kind of interesting. Yes, I'd like to share that in some way by talking to other people about it or or sharing it via social media. Was there anything that surprised you when you started talking to people and and you got something back say, oh, I had no idea that people didn't understand the meaning of this word or, or thought about things in this way? Well, what was fascinating was that when you say the word DNA, the natural response from most people in the groups was, oh, is that something to do with identifying bodies? Is that to do with crime scenes? Um, when you uh, said the words gene and genetics, people said, is that to do with families and things that run in families? And, and that's obviously true. And then when I said the word genomics, there was often this sort of long pause, this silence. Um, and most people said, I have no clue. I've never heard of it. Um, and then they would start to break down the word literally. So genomics, is it to do with gnomes by any chance? You know, really <laughs> taking the word literally. Because um, it's a very alien concept, alien term. Um, so we, we, we really liked that, uh, and we decided to uh, capture the idea of the gnome and see if we could use that as a metaphor for sequencing. So the little bearded gnome with his fishing rod sequencing, looking for information, fishing through 
all your DNA and uh, seeing if there's anything useful and interesting in there. Um, so that, that formed one of the animations. In terms of other things that popped up, I didn't actually ask about fears or harms or anything like that, but independently, people mentioned insurance in relation to genetics. So they felt that they could be uh, discriminated against. You know, they'd heard about insurance companies potentially using genetic data to uh, formulate changes to policies. And most people don't actually know that they can't be discriminated against on the basis of a genetic test. You're not allowed to ask, or insurance companies are not allowed to ask if you've had a genetic test result. Um, But nevertheless, there's this misconception that there will be mass exploitation. So we made that the heart of one of the animations as well. What can people do if they want to see the animations and take part in it? What are you after people to do? So what we'd really like them to do is to go to genetube.org and that's our little research website. And you click in there, you can see the animations, you get asked a few questions, uh, you can bounce around between the animations. Just let us know what you think. You might love them, you might hate them. Either way, it's very useful to know. Uh, you might think, ooh, no idea what all this is about, what's the point? Or you might think, ooh, actually, yes, that would help me start a conversation. I mean, this is just trying to do evidence-based uh, you know, science communication and uh, trying to work out how to do it better. I mean, this is really just a starter to just get some ideas. I mean, the next level would be actually to turn these into into proper films and to build on the ideas and to try and gather a bit more evidence about what works and what doesn't. It is going to be more and more important that the general public understands more about genetics. Where do you think are the key gaps? Is it at schools? Is it more widely in the media? Or is it just everywhere? I think there's... There is a lot of information out there about the science of genetics. I mean, you just have to go onto YouTube and you'll see thousands of films that will give you the science. Um, What we're trying to do is just something a little bit different, a little bit more creative, trying to to deliver the messages in a slightly different way and to work out whether they work or not. And if they do, then we could build that um, into something that is useful for schools and is useful for patients and you know, is is more widely available. So it would take genetics out of the more niche market into into the mainstream market. So it's just the early stages of trying to work out how to do that. So if it can go mainstream, then fantastic. I think we've got a long way to go before we reach that point, though. You wonder if as many people will talk about genetics as talk about the football. (laughs) Well, the wonderful thing about genetics is it just connects us all, doesn't it? I mean, it's it's what uh, ties us to our relatives and ties us, you know, to humanity. It's all about us. It's all about our identity. Uh, And for me, that's far more exciting than the football. Anna Middleton. And you can watch the films and contribute to her research project at genetube.org. Also in the news this month... An international group of researchers, including those at UCL and Queen Mary University of London, found that almost all of the 34 pregnant women in a small ethics survey would be happy to participate in a clinical trial for gene therapy if their unborn child is suffering from severe growth problems. The scientists, all part of a consortium called Everest, are currently planning the first ever trial of this kind of maternal gene therapy. But they needed to know whether mothers-to-be will actually be happy to take part. Because if they aren't, that's a big problem. The condition to be treated, known as fetal growth restriction, affects up to 8% of all pregnancies and is usually caused by a lack of blood flow in the womb and placenta. At the moment, women whose babies are affected by the condition either have to deliver their baby prematurely to give it the best shot at life, 
or risk the chance that it may die in the womb. So it's hoped that the new treatment will help to reduce stillbirths and babies dying shortly after birth, as well as cutting long-term complications such as cerebral palsy, diabetes and heart disease in the children that do survive. The gene therapy designed to treat it has been in development since 2013, involving putting a gene that makes a molecule called VEGF directly into the arteries in the mother's womb, where it helps to stabilise the blood vessels and encourage blood to flow. So far, it's worked well in animal studies, so the time has come to take it into trials in humans in the next year or so. So fingers crossed for a successful outcome. And the reference for that study, along with loads of extra information and transcripts of every single interview, can be found on the Naked Genetics website. That's nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be learning about a legless gene of the month. But first... Humans aren't the only animals to be getting their genomes analysed. Our four-legged friends have been getting in on the act too, as I found out when I spoke to Jeff Schoenbeck from the Roslin Institute in Edinburgh. The differences between pugs and Great Danes and and these dogs are very uh, disparate shapes. What's remarkable is that it seems like in dogs, these things that are driving shape differences can be held in a couple hands. So this is quite a striking difference to other species. And, and, you know, I think about human stature and and the genetics of something like that in humans, which we know um, from studies, uh, there's hundreds of variants that seem to be important or playing into this determining uh, stature. And in dogs, what we have are, at the moment, I mean, it depends on the study and how it's designed, but you know, somewhere in the tens of variants that could be playing into this. And that's a that's a remarkable difference. But bear in mind, you know, a lot of these variants had to be recognized by breeders, so in the litter. And so we think, the, you know, the difference between dogs and humans or other species is that the variants in particular that are affecting morphology probably have larger effects than um, what would typically be found in, in a population of, of humans. Different dog breeds have been very highly selected for, you know, they want the long ears of a basset, they want mm. the kind of the, the luxurious hair of a poodle. How do you start pinning down some of these genetic differences that lead to these really quite disparate traits? So we, we begin by comparing... Uh, the skulls, the shapes and sizes of skulls across animals. Our study design is is based on patients that come in through the referral hospital, um, many of them coming through um, the Royal Dick School of Veterinary Studies. You know, these patients are coming because they have, there's a diagnostic purpose for them to have a, a CT scan. But we can take that information from the, when a dog gets a head scan, we can use it to reconstruct the head, and we can derive size and shape from those animals. And so we can feed these, this information into our genome-wide association studies, which, you know, for all intents and purposes, tell us what area of the dog genome or and what piece of DNA is carrying uh, a particular genetic change and is driving a pug to have a, a shorter snout. That's the first part. So we want to get, we want to find a signal that's driving a particular shape-related event, and we want to identify what chromosome and what region of the chromosome that, that change is located on. 
And then we want to look across our data and try to, by comparing um, dogs of similar shapes to those that lack that shape, and identify what is what is the minimal region where this mutation or this genetic change could be could fall in. Is it a hundred thousand positions? Is it ninety thousand? And then once we have an interval defined, then we we leverage these whole genome sequencing technologies that have come on board in recent years and. We sift through genotypes and genetic variants, and we try to we try to infer what is the best candidate there that could be causing this morphological change. Ultimately, we just we want to understand what is the the change at the DNA level that's driving the trait, and um, you know in the future we'd like to characterize the biology behind this. But it's still a bit of early days for us. We're we're still trying to define what are the places in the dog genome that drive size and head shape. More broadly, looking at other studies that have been done, what sort of genes have been identified that give some of the, the varieties to dogs that we see? Yeah, so, you know, the, I think among the morphology studies, you know, size is where the most data exists. And we see genes that, are, that make sense, things that affect uh, insulin signaling, insulin growth factor one, which we know in a myriad of species is affecting, can affect overall animal size. Growth hormone receptor. Again, this is a this is a, a gene who captures uh, signaling molecules and signals downstream to modulate growth. So these are fantastic. Um, they make sense in terms of why they've been selected by inbreeders to to modulate animal size. And then we have you know from the skull side side of things, it's still pretty wide open. And this is you know again the interest of my lab is to to put this issue to rest, so to speak. We know we can infer that BMP signaling is is probably involved. BMP being, standing for bone morphogenetic protein, so that makes sense. There's still a lot to be done. One of my favourite traits in dogs is the little stumpy ones, things sure. like corgis and, and dachshunds and bassets. Is there a similarity between these kind of stumpy dogs in terms of their genetics. Absolutely. And this is fantastic work. Heidi Parker and in Elaine Nostrander's lab wondered the same exact thing. What what is driving dogs to have smaller legs? And the, the technical term for this is asymmetric chondrodysplasia. Cute stumpiness. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you know so she she compared all the belly scraping dogs to those that stand high off the ground and looked for genetic differences between um, you know, the dogs with the short legs and the dogs with long legs. And she found this beautiful signal on chromosome 18. You used other tools to see, well, was there breeder-mediated selection in this area on chromosome 18? And indeed there was. And then through using sequencing and mapping technologies, she was able to find a region. And it turns out it's a, a an additional copy of FGF4 what does FGF4 do, and how did an extra copy of it get yeah. into these short dogs? So FGF4, fibroblast growth factor. And, and FGF, uh, there's a large family of FGFs, and they're involved in a host of different um, biological processes, but they have a very prominent role in development. And FGF4 in particular is a gene that's required uh, for normal limb growth. In, in many species, this has been demonstrated. And so... What we think occurred in dogs, and this is 
due to the structure of this additional FGF gene that was identified. And what we can, what we infer is that it's in fact a copy of RNA. The message of the gene. The message of the gene had been reverse transcribed back to DNA. And that DNA got inserted back into the genome. So the dogs wound up with an extra copy of FGF4. And somehow this extra copy, well, the overexpression of this gene is probably perturbing limb development. So it's restricting limb growth. And then presumably some owner of that dog went, wow, that's cute. Let's make more of those. Absolutely. And so, well, and, and so here's, you know, getting back to this idea of form and function. Well, here it's men saying, well, these dogs have a form that can you know, suit very well in the function of going into holes of badgers or or rabbits and chasing out prey or unwanted pests in the farmland. And so many of these dogs that have this FGF retrogene are dogs that are used for hunting in burrows. And then the, the other, I guess, the other large body of dogs that have this are cattle herders. So the idea being that they're so low to the ground, if a cow kicks, you know, swoop up above the head and they'll miss the, it won't connect with their head <laughs> that was jeff schoenbeck from the roslin institute and finally it's time for our gene of the month and this time it's picopus named after the species of australian legless lizards not snakes they're definitely lizards picopus was first discovered in fruit flies in 2002 Working together with genes known as legless and wingless, Pigapus has a range of roles in the developing fruit fly maggot, including setting up the basic body plan, guiding the development of the gut, heart and brain, along with the structures that go on to form parts of the adult fly, including the wings, and unsurprisingly given the gene's name, the legs. And it's not just flies. Versions of Pigapus have been found in other species, including humans. We have two versions of the gene, and Pigapus faults have been implicated in bowel cancers and other types of tumour too. That's all for now. Next month, I'll be taking a look at the so-called compatibility genes. How do they work, and how do they shape life, love and health? If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page, or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is available on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes.